All right, good morning. I got three good mornings. Come on. There we go. Now we have a quorum. Well, as Mike said, my name is Brian, uh, one of the pastors here at Church 20 in Montreal. <clears throat> it is indeed Palm Sunday. How many of you in, sun- maybe you were uh, going to Sunday school as a child, how many of you made palm branches on Palm Sunday? As you're- Look at that. I don't think our kids are doing that today, but they should be, right? Like everybody needs to have this a part of their experience that you're cutting palm branches out of construction paper on Palm Sunday. Uh, as Mike said that uh, we're into Holy Week, rather than looking at Palm Sunday, we're going to be moving towards uh, Friday, Good Friday, the day that we celebrate uh, the death of Jesus uh, upon the cross for us and uh, and. And then this week we'll be looking then at that, and it'll play counterpoint to Easter Sunday, next Sunday, when we look at the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, specifically this morning, we're going to be looking at the atonement, the atonement of Jesus. Um, What was specifically accomplished by Jesus on the cross? Because we know in some fashion, in some way, humanity was saved through the suffering uh, and, and bleeding and dying of Jesus uh, for us on the cross, that his, his blood being spilled did something huge and cosmic and beautiful, uh, but it's, it's something that we don't fully understand. This is uh, what C.S. Lewis refers to in his Narnian allegory as the, the, the deeper magic, the magic that, that is beyond sort of the understanding of what we have uh, up front. Um, so that's where we're going to go into this morning. We're going to dig deeper into the deeper magic. Um, as Mike said, I do. I woke up yesterday with a cold. You know, it's like when, you're, when you get sick and you sleep all night and then you wake up and you're like, I feel great. And then you have like about, you've earned, eight hours of sleep earns you about one hour of energy and then it's all done for the day. Um, so that's, that's fun, but not unusual. The weeks that you have... Um, the privilege of being able to open God's word and preach are also weeks that usually suck pretty bad as the enemy is like, oh, okay, and marshals their limited resources against you. Uh, but the joke is on them because the more beat down you are when you come to the pulpit, the more dependent you are on the Holy Spirit and not your own strength. So Jesus still wins. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to pray again for us and uh, we'll get to work. Papa God, uh, we thank you that we get to be in this space this morning and reflect upon the work of your son, uh, that you did not withhold his life uh, from us, but that you desired uh, to be with us so deeply that, that you sent your son into the world to become one of us, uh, to, to live as a human being, to, to die for us. We thank you, Jesus, for this and your obedience to the Father in this and, and now sending the Spirit to enable us to understand what it is that you did, uh, to give us insight into it. Spirit, we ask that we would have special insight into the atonement of Jesus this morning and that, uh, Spirit, you would be with me and that you would um, give me the, the energy and clarity to, to deliver this well, uh, that Jesus would get all of the glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was four years old, my dad was reading to me one of those picture Bibles. It's not a real Bible because it doesn't have the actual text in it, but it it would have like a picture on the left side 
And on the right side would be a story of some kind talking about what's happening in the left side. And I remember the day that we were going through and we turned the page and there was this image of a man dying. Now, most children books do not have images of gore and death and blood and like torture, right? This is not a normal thing. Um, So I saw something like this and my little four-year-old brain's thinking like, whoa, like what am I seeing? What is happening here? Explain this. I, I was troubled by it. And so my dad explained to me that this Uh, that this was God's son who had come and was dying, not because he had done anything wrong, but because of my sin. And so my little four-year-old brain is like reeling uh, with this information that that I had fallen short of God's perfection and, and rather than just condemn me, that God loved me and wanted to be with me so much that he sent his son to die in my place. And so I could be in relationship with God through the forgiveness that's possible through Jesus. My dad was describing to me, uh, probably for the first time that I could understand on, on a child's level, the atonement. Mike read this passage for us, uh, and we'll just read it again quickly here, because Isaiah, though he came before the work of Jesus, does such a good job of encapsulating prophetically everything that was significant about the atonement, the work that Jesus did. So surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. Everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this is, this is encapsulating so much of what Jesus did, that God was the one who struck Jesus, and that it was for us that Jesus was struck, and that all of the sins, all of our sins were placed on Jesus, and through this, through some way, we are able to have peace. So my dad explains all this to me, and that, you know, I can trust Jesus to save me if I ask him to. So I did that. I prayed with my dad right there and then. I asked Jesus to be my savior, my king, and my treasure. I confessed my need for him. And I've been following Jesus ever since, uh, all the way from Oregon to here in Quebec. Why? Because Jesus died on a cross to take away my sins. Now, for anyone who's grown up in the church, these words are so familiar to us. This way of speaking, using these terms, are so familiar to us that they they kind of eventually lose their meaning. We don't really think about how weird it is to say these things. If you didn't grow up in church, you you maybe have questions about this. You are rightly wondering, how is it that some guy dies on a Roman cross in the Middle East, that that affects the life of a four-year-old boy in Oregon 2,000 years later. Why, why does that work? How does that happen? What did exactly Jesus do on the cross? And why did it work? So these questions are really asking, what is the atonement of Jesus and how did it work? So we're going to look at the atonement this morning. And we're going to uh, first look at what the word atonement means. We'll unpack that a little bit. And we'll look at, there's 
eight different views of what the atonement, eight, eight different theories about what the atonement did. So we'll kind of walk our way through those, and then finally we'll wrap up with a story about two goats. Sound fun? Yes. All right. First, what does the word atonement mean? Well, Google gives a really great definition, reparation for wrong or injury. Then it gives a second definition for use in religious context. So there we go. Reparation or expiation for sin. So it's dialing in a little bit, a little bit more. Expiation means an act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing. There's some circular defining that's going on there. It's inappropriate. But but then Google gives a specifically Christian definition. We warrant our own definition for this. The reconciliation of God and humankind through Jesus Christ. Good job, Google. Nailed it. Um, So we have these three definitions, and then it also lists some helpful synonyms. Uh, includes reparation, compensation, recompense, payment, repayment, redress, restitution, indemnity, indemnification, expiation, penance, redemption, amends. All of these definitions and synonyms have some idea of, of something being owed, a debt, and then the atonement is paying that debt, canceling that debt, removing that debt. But it doesn't end there it goes on to a relational component. Now, when you have a debt between people, that affects the relationship, right? When you owe somebody money. Like there was this kid in high school and every day he was always wanting to borrow money. And I, I don't know, I would just give him like one of coins and stuff I had. And by the end of the school year, uh, or maybe by the end of my time in high school, he owed me like 20 bucks. You know, he'd always be like, oh, I'll pay you back. And his dad owned a car dealership, and I eventually bought a car from his dad's car dealership, and I asked them, you know, could you knock this 20 bucks off the price of the car? They said no. Um, I'm like, it would have been really easy to square that way. But it affected our relationship eventually after a while that this guy owed me these 20 bucks over all this time. Um, Our debt before God is more serious than candy money. Uh, it It is a kind of debt before God that completely severs our relationship, which is a huge problem because we were designed to have relationship with God. And that's where all life comes from for us. And separation from God biblically means both physical and eventually spiritual death. So our separation from God is a huge problem. And this is where atonement comes in and actually repays the debt but repays the debt in a way that restores relationship and brings unity. Um, That atonement, actually, its roots in Latin language stuff from like the 1600s, there's this this sense of at-one-ment. There's an old verb that was like one-ment. We don't say that anymore. We just say unity, but they used to say one-ment. And there's this sense of being uh, of at-one-ment, that we're coming together in unity. Uh, And so in the word atonement, we have this beautiful word picture, uh, essentially at one meant to be made one with someone, to be reunited with them by overcoming a debt or a wrong or an injury. And we see this kind of oneness happening in a healthy way already between uh, Jesus and the Father, Um, Gospel John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And then uh, a few chapters later in chapter 17, Jesus prays over his disciples and he asks the Father that as the church they would become one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. Oneness is important to God. 
Now, this kind of oneness is distinct from the type of oneness that we would see in like Eastern religions. Like in, in Hinduism, there's this sense of like you're trying to be um, reabsorbed back up into the, the, the godness of, of Brahman or, or whatever sort of new age variant of that you may have heard. That there's this, you're, you're like a drop of water returning to the ocean of consciousness, right? Your individuality is, is, is diluted and dispersed. This is not the Christian understanding of oneness. Uh, in, in the Christian understanding of oneness and the kind of oneness that atonement achieves, everyone retains a deep sense of their individual personhood. We, we see this first and foremost within God's own oneness, that though he is one, there are three distinct persons. In a way that we don't fully understand, we are also caught up into relationship with God in a way that involves unity, not that we become God, but that, but that we are embraced by God, that we are um, hugged in there. Uh, we are ultimately designed by the creator to be held and hugged by God. This is what we are made for. It's our design. And, and ultimately, so all human uh, desires, everything that we see people pursuing in this world is an attempt to get back into that embrace. When you seek a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, uh, or, or failing those things, drink, food, sex, pornography, whatever it is that, that people are pursuing, they're, they're trying to get into that space where they feel embraced and connected relationally to, to fill that thing that is missing. We, we've lost that. We've been cut off from it because Satan tricked us into thinking that this was too restrictive, that maybe God was trying to hide something better from us. And so we, we rejected the embrace of God and we traded the truth for a lie and glory for sewage. And now all of us are flailing about looking for this thing that we've lost. Isn't that what we see in the world? People are just flailing about, searching, pawing through the muck, looking for this thing, and they cannot find it. It's a frantic searching. And yet God is, God is not unable. Where we are unable, God is not unable. He desires that we would return to this embrace. Yeah, he can't just overlook our sin and our uh, debt to be repaid, but rather than telling us to clean ourselves up, he comes in and he does it for us. We cannot pay our debt, so God sends Jesus to do that. So he's going to pay the debt, atone, to restore relational unity between us and the Father, one man. So that's what we see in the Bible when we use the word atonement as Christians. That's what we mean. How is this accomplished? So now we're going to get into the, the various theories. There's been different theories, different understandings of how uh, this happens, um, several views, and they're not all mutually exclusive. It's not like there's just one right view. Uh, there are a variety of views, and they have different um, levels of usefulness and utility. Some are more biblical, some are more helpful, some are more meaningful than others. Uh, but we, we, we need more than one view to fully comprehend what Jesus is doing. And so uh, theologians will use the analogy of a gemstone for the atonement. Uh, a gemstone has many sides or uh, facets to it. And to truly appreciate a gemstone, you cannot just look at it in two dimensions the way that you all are enjoying this gemstone now. 
Uh, You have to pick it up, put it to the light, and turn it so that you allow the light to play through the different facets and the different complexities so you can begin to appreciate the complexity and the beauty of the stone. Now, the way the Bible presents the atonement is with a similar beauty and complexity. We cannot just come and take and say, look at it from one angle, but there are, it appears that Jesus was doing many things during the atonement. There is a complexity that leads to a, 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 an appreciation of beauty in the work of the atonement. So this is what, our, uh, this is what we're going to get into here now for this next middle chunk is to dwell on the beauty of the atonement and to dig into that, that deeper magic that uh, C.S. Lewis talks about. And uh, so they'll be on the screen if you want to write them down for your own interest, you may do. All right, number one, moral example theory. This is the idea that Jesus' death on the cross was simply an example of perfect love to lay down your life for others, which we see is biblical, right? That should sound familiar. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But let's say this is your view of the atonement, and that's it. There's no atoning. There's no payment for sin. This is just a good example of love. And for those who would say, this is it, this is the one thing, there isn't any sort of work that's taking place inside the atonement other than um, being inspiring. And so it, it leaves us in our sin and expects us to be inspired by Jesus's example and leverage ourselves out of our situation. But as Paul says, that's impossible. We cannot do that. For the mind is set on the flesh, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there is a spiritual, moral inability that is endemic in us. And so we need more than just a selfie of Jesus on the cross being like, hey guys, check this out. Look what this thing that I did. Inspiring, right? We need more than that. Um, We are in deep, deep trouble. We need more than cheerleader Jesus, right? Rah, rah, you can do it. Go like, swim like this. You can, you're doing a good job, right? We need more than that. Uh, We need more than cheerleader Jesus, I should have looked for a picture of Jesus in a cheerleader outfit. I guarantee the internet would have backed me up on that, but no. Now, uh, despite this, some people really like this view. It, they love this view. Why? Because it doesn't involve making Jesus their Lord and King. Jesus is more like a life coach, which if you have one, you don't really have to listen to what they say. They're there to just tell you to be true to you right? That's all they, that's their whole job. You pay them to affirm what is in your heart. So this is one of the favorite Jesuses of today in our modern culture. They like this in this thing, in this time of follow your heart. Uh, The second one is very similar, moral influence theory. This is the idea that Jesus's death was an example of God's love to us individually, that while we were yet sinners, uh, he died for us, which again, sounds biblical, Sounds right. Romans 5, 8, for God chose his love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what's the difference between the first one and this one? Because they're super similar. First one is Jesus just sort of like dying as a general example that you see in the world, in history. You know, this is more specific to you. Jesus died for you. Doesn't that influence you to do better? 
This is the same problem that we have with the other one. Again, it's like, Jesus is like, huh? Huh? Pretty great. Why don't you try that? Why don't you be better and suck less? Right? This is what he's, this is what this is pushing for. People seem to think that, you know, you can work harder if you're just inspired by the right thing. So like half of Instagram is these motivational things. They put, who, who has seen these things? Come on. Yeah, all over the place. They're ridiculous. No matter how hard you have to go, keep climbing. Motivation mindset. Hashtag crush it. You know, like, it's just, I see that and I'm like, oh, I'm tired. <laughs> like thinking about climbing those stairs. That's the, that's, this is, this is the thing though, that this is where this view leaves us. Uh, it's the idea that we, if we're inspired, we can, we can do it. We can work harder. Um, that Jesus is the ultimate influencer, right? There's all these influencers now. Did you know that if you have a couple hundred thousand followers on Instagram, you can just drop out of college. If you put a Pepsi in all your vacation photos, you work out a deal, you never have to work again. Some of you guys are thinking like, new life plan. Why am I, why am I doing what I'm doing? It's, it's this whole thing. But Jesus is the ultimate influencer, right? Three point, or 2.5 billion followers or whatever in the world. You know, beats out Justin Bieber. Someone famous. I don't know. I can't think of anybody who has more followers than him. Um, take that. So this is, this is the idea. Jesus is like an influencer. He just, he influences you. And um, the reason that both of these views, example and influence theories, are as popular as standalone views is in addition to removing the lordship of Jesus and making him your life coach, it also helps transform Christianity from a faith-based relationship to a works-based religion right? Like climbing those stairs. You got to do something. And if you can turn Christianity into a religion, then you can just align Christianity next to Buddhism, Islam, and all these other religions with lists of things that you need to do to get up to the top of the spiritual pyramid, right? And then they can say things like, oh, you know, you do you. Everybody's going to the same place. We're just all following different paths to get to the same place. No need to fight. Let's not, you know, argue about this. It doesn't really matter. They like that. They want to be able to do that. Christianity is moral striving, works better within a pluralistic moral relativism. And yet, this is not Christianity. Christianity uh, flies in the face of this as a relationship with God through faith in the work of Jesus. Um, it's like a Yoda quote. There is no do. There is no try. Why? Because Jesus has already done everything. There's no fire escape stairs to endlessly climb to try to get to the top. So while we can see that there's some biblical precedent for these two views, like they're not unbiblical, but if they're standalone views, they're wildly insufficient and inappropriate for us because they don't involve any actual atoning for sin. Uh, so we need to keep going. Ransom theory. This is the weirdest one. Um, this is the idea that all of sinners are in bondage or slavery to Satan and that Jesus bribes Satan in a back alley somewhere with his blood to like ransom us. He's like, if I give you all my blood, will you let my people go? That puts Satan in a weird place. Um, that's not supremely biblical. Um, there, is, there, is, um, there is some idea in scripture that there is bondage, spiritual bondage to darkness, to the evil powers. Um, but 
and, and there is this idea of, of the word ransom. We see it in Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But nobody now sees this as paying off Satan. It's, it's, a, it's more of a sense of being redeemed from slavery, but slavery to sin and death. And sin and death can't receive payment. They're, they're concepts. And so this is just a, a concept, the idea that Jesus was making some kind of payment. Now, it is, it is true, though, that there was something that Jesus was doing against the spiritual forces of darkness, against Satan. So this uh, view eventually morphed into something we call Christus Victor, the idea that Jesus was victorious on a spiritual level over the demonic realm. Uh, we, we, we see him uh, coming in and rescuing us from Satan, not ransoming, but rescuing us from Satan and from sin and death by the blood. And that through the cross, he had victory over these things. Is this biblical? Well, we know that in addition to making a way for us, Jesus also did strike some sort of blow. We see it. Um, Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter two. He says in you, so the first part here is more traditional atonement and then this extra bit. You who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in that last bit, we see the context of the atonement, the more traditional piece of it, then we also see Jesus disarming, shaming, and triumphing over the, this, this rulers and authorities, this demonic uh, realm. We'll see that this is actually referring to cosmic powers. He wasn't overthrowing human powers, um, though his disciples expected him to come into Jerusalem on a white horse, not a donkey, not a baby donkey, but a white horse, and, and overthrow the Roman Empire, restore the throne of David and, and the kingdom of Israel. That's what they expected. But G- and Jesus will do that. Someday, we're living between visits. The next visit, it's on a white horse. But this visit, baby donkey, didn't want to scare anybody. He came in peace, but not against the spiritual forces of the, of, of the world. It, it's interesting to see, if you read in the Gospel of Mark, you should do this when you get home. Open the Gospel of Mark and just start going through the first two chapters and note how the demons, which are possessing people, react to Jesus showing up. Because they can see who he is. And their reactions are hilarious. They're just going along and then they see with their eyes, God, the son on the ground with them and their reaction are like, what are you doing here? You're early. Like they know he's coming for them, but I thought I had more time. I have plans tonight. You know, are you here to torture us? That's what they say. I mean, it's really like you get the sense of like Jesus is healing people, but he is kicking demons butts. This is what's taking place. It's a spiritual Uh, battle that's taking place. And we, as stepping in to what Jesus is doing, that our battle is is, is also with us. So Jesus, what it says here is that he, 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 he triumphed over them the way that a victor takes the captors, strips them, puts a hook in their nose, and then leads them into his city victorious. And they are disarmed and ashamed. This is what has happened to the demonic powers that have a superstructure over this earth. And then we enter into that, not that we're against people, but that we're entering a battle against these demonic rulers also, which is what makes things like the Crusades so sad and wrong. 
Um, Paul made it super clear long before they went on the Crusades. Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Just pause there. How often during this past week did you consider that you, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, that you are at war with immortal, ancient, powerful demon beings like you see in horror movies? You're at war with them. You have taken up on Jesus' side, and now you are doing spiritual battle. I mean, who thought about this this last week? Do we think about this? We should. If you're at war and you don't know, you're going to lose. You need to know that. They're very sneaky. It's like you're at war with lawyers. I think demons wear suits, and they just whisper things to our ears. This is how they roll, and it's very effective. They're very good at it. And, uh, but we are no longer subject to them because of the victory of Jesus. All right, we need to keep going because this is helpful. Jesus did do this, but again, we're still shy of actual atonement. So uh, number five, recapitulation theory. This view says essentially uh, that Jesus uh, is succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus is the second Adam. We see this in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's really long. We won't read it. We don't have time. But the idea is, is that Jesus was obedient where Adam sucked and failed. And sometimes this view feels like it's more about the life of Jesus than the death of Jesus. But we know that Jesus' obedience, biblically, it talks about it being obedient even unto death, death on a cross. And so there's that, we'll give it that. But it's, it's, there's the sense that one of the things Jesus was doing, besides setting a good example, besides shaming and defeating demons, is that he's rebooting humanity. That's very important, but we've got to keep turning the gemstone here um, to find something about the atonement. Where these last three, we're going to begin to see more of the traditional atonement and payment for sin. Too far. There we go. Moral government theory. This, this view was first raised to combat the idea that Jesus could deal with sin by just sort of looking the other way. Be like, don't worry about it. Just, you know, it's fine. I'll just forgive it, right? And this guy, I don't remember who it is. Some guy was, was like, no, this is wrong. God is like the king of the universe, the president or prime minister. We're in Canada, the queen, whatever. God, God is ruler over all this thing. So he, it's not appropriate. It wouldn't be moral for God to just give out presidential pardons to everyone, right? That would be wrong. And so this idea says that somebody had to be punished. And so Jesus steps into that punishment. So far, so good. But where this view falls short is that it says that they're kind of just making an example out of Jesus, where Jesus didn't actually bear the sins of the whole world. They just sort of like made an example of him. And they're like, okay, well, that's taken care of. You've all been shown, right? Uh, and so it's funny to me that this, the whole goal with this was to not have God overlook sin, and yet it still has God overlooking most sin, if Jesus was only made an example of. And as you saw in our Isaiah 53 passage, that he had laid on him the iniquity of us all, all of it. So closer moral government theory, but not quite. The last two are going to help nail it down. They are satisfaction theory, and then finally the penal substitutionary theory. There we go. 
This view says that Jesus suffered on the cross as a substitute for human sin, satisfying God's wrath against humanity, trading Jesus's merit for our dishonor. This view is kind of in line with honor and shame cultures. Did anybody grow up in an honor-shame culture? Some students from other countries that may have grown up in that type of environment, honor and shame. You'll see this in like... Uh, in movies and stuff where in like, even back in the old days, the gentleman, right? They would offend, another gentleman would offend a gentleman and they'd be like, take off their glove and hit them across the face. I demand satisfaction, right? Pistols at dawn, you know, duel, I challenge you to a duel. They're trying to restore their honor because they have been shamed. You spat on my horse, you know, or whatever. Something like this. It used to work like this. This is this kind of idea here that, that we have dishonored God and something needs to happen to restore his honor. Moderately correct, but there's this issue of, did, is our offense truly just against God's honor? We see a sense of all sin is against God, right? King David, what's he do? Forces himself on Bathsheba, impregnates her, tries to cover it up, that doesn't work, arranges for her husband to be murdered. Eventually he gets convicted. And when he is pouring out his heart in grief over his sin, uh, in Psalm 51, what does he say? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's pretty gutsy after you've sort of like raped and murdered, right? What about the victims? He's using, obviously he sinned against them. But the, his sense of his transgression against God was so strong that he uses hyperbole here to say, you, you only have I sinned. That is how much all sin is ultimately, though we commit it against one another, is ultimately against God. And this is an important concept for us, especially in our moral, morally shifty culture right now. If philosophically, it is incredibly difficult to say that anything is morally right or wrong if you remove the image of God from people. And we talked a lot about image of God in the last sermon series, Him and Her, the idea that we, we gain uh, value and worth in equality as human beings because we were made in the image of God. If you remove that, it becomes very difficult to make a case to say it's morally wrong to rape and murder. It's very hard to do. You can say, you know, evolutionarily, natural selection tends to select uh, communities that frown upon rape and murder, right? And, and over generations, we begin to develop a, a feeling of like, that's, that's not right. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't support that. We should punish that. That, that just sort of evolves in us. You can make a case for that in our culture, and people do. But you, you cannot say it's actually morally wrong to murder anyone. You can't say that without God. So there is this deep connection to God when we transgress, when we sin, when we do something bad. But it's biblically, we don't see it in the shame, honor culture so much. We see it more in a guilt and innocence culture sense. And this is more familiar to us in the Western world because that is the way that the Bible generally operates is in terms of guilt and innocence. And Western world culture, like it or not, mostly finds its roots in the Bible. Much of our values and worldview come out of being influenced for hundreds of years by the Bible. So this is more familiar to us. And whereas this uh, theory, the satisfaction theory, is more shame and honor, our final one that we're going to look at, penal substitution theory, is 
more based in this sort of guilt and innocence culture that we're familiar with. And this view is probably, if you have to pick one, this is it. This one, though it, it's, it doesn't include all of the beauty of everything that Jesus accomplished, if you want to get down to the nuts and bolts of what's important and what the Bible most accurately says about what Jesus did in the atonement, this is the one. And it comes down to us through history, through the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and even today, it's repeatedly reaffirmed that if you take the Bible seriously, this is where you land. If you want to pull back from the Bible as a source of authority, then you can choose you know, Jesus was a good example, or he's a good influence on people, um, but this is where we land. So, penal substitutionary theory. So, instead of considering sin as an affront to God's honor, this theory views sin as breaking God's moral law, that God has put out a law of what's right and wrong, and we are, we are law breakers. And now we are guilty, and someone must pay this debt for being guilty, for this crime. And that someone can either be us or it can be Jesus, that Jesus stepped in to take the guilt and transfers to us his innocence. He becomes guilty, we become innocent. There's this exchange that happens, that he takes his righteousness and trades it for our unrighteousness or unrightness. We see this kind of language, this law language being used by Paul. It's all over the Bible, but just to choose one. Galatians 3 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And then specific to this view is the idea that, that God's wrath, just wrath against sin, which is the kind of anger that a parent has when someone tries to hurt their child. Right? You're at the park and some creepy guy grabs your kid by the arm and you're like, let go of my kid right now or we're going to have a problem, right? That kind of like, no one's like, oh, what's that guy's problem? Like, it's, it's a righteous anger, a righteous wrath against our brokenness, that that wrath is coming at us so much so that the Bible talks about us as being objects of wrath, that that is your state, that you're born as an object or target of God's wrath, that, that specific to this view, that what Jesus did is he propitiated uh, or appeased um, God's wrath by having it all redirected into himself. That he absorbs the wrath of God that is directed against us and our sins. So pr- propitiation essentially means to appease. And that, that has been appeased by the blood and death of Jesus. We see this in a couple ways in First John. Uh, he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, And again in chapter 4, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now at this point, you may be like saying, okay, now this is starting to sound like what I think of when I think of the atonement, the work of Jesus. This begins to sound familiar. I was guilty and now I am not guilty because Jesus has taken my sins away. And again, this is partly because maybe you've grown up with this, Uh, but this is the most biblically accurate view and at the same time, the most unpopular view in today's culture. Why? Three reasons. Uh, First of all, it says that we're wrong. This view says that we are wrong, that we are lawbreakers, that we're broken, dirty, deserve wrath, judgment, death, separation from all that is lovely, good, and holy, that we are rebels and that we are essentially depraved 
pervasively all the way down to our core that deep down people aren't good. Deep down people are evil. The people are bad in our innermost parts and that we're worse than we're even able to understand because we have a bad habit of grading humanity on a curve. And so we're like, well, not that bad. I mean, you know, Hitler and Nazis and pedophiles. But from God's holy, holy, holy position of divine perfection, when he sees us in our sin, he sees us the way that we would see, you know, Nazi pedophiles. The two worst things I could think of combined, right? Like that is just like the way that he sees us from his vantage point. We are not able to fully comprehend just how evil and and dirty and wicked that we are. But then secondly, and perhaps even more offensively to the modern ear, you can't even do anything about it. We're like, you're gross and you can't fix yourself. If, if we said, you know, you have a problem, but you can do it. I believe in you. You can clean yourself up. People are like, yeah, I'm, insp- I'm going to do that. We're saying, no, you can't. There's nothing you can do. And then thirdly, and worst of all, when you hear that help is possible, you find out that you can't do anything to pay for it. That you can't exchange anything for it. That it has to be accepted as a free gift, as charity, right? You suck. You can't do anything about it, but charity. People don't like to accept charity. This is humbling. It's offensive. But if we're intellectually honest and biblically literate, this view holds the most water. And while all of the views that we've looked at this morning, as we've kind of turned the atoning crystal around here, the gemstone, to look at the different sides, there's, you see the complexity of what Jesus accomplished in the cross, but also this is the main view. It gives us the best picture of the inner workings. Uh, but there's one more layer to this that I would like us to hit. Because uh, I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to talk about two goats. You were paying attention. Where are they? There they are. Those are not the goats. Those are just a goats. Um, in the Old Testament, the people of God celebrated something called the Day of Atonement. See the connection? Atonement. The Day of Atonement. It was before Jesus came, right? It was a single day, once a year. Like, the Israelite people were supposed to be making sacrifice for sin. It was expensive. You're like, you know, thinking about sinning, but you check your check, you know, your bank account, you're like, I don't even have enough money to pay for this after. Like, I should probably just be holy. It was a problem. Like, they had to be all the time spilling blood to propitiate the wrath of God away onto animals and grain offerings. If you're really poor, you could, like, burn an Eggo waffle or a Pop-Tart because that's all you had, processed food. You're like, I don't own any livestock. Um, and so, you know, this was like a huge thing, but nobody was really hitting all the sins. And so God, in his grace, invented a catch-all sacrifice to kind of, you know, catch the rest of them that maybe were missing during the, during the year at some point. And so this was on the day of atonement. And, uh, it involved a bunch of stuff, but it involved these two goats. And one of the goats was a blood sacrifice goat. They would kill it put the blood on the altar. This was to propitiate the sin, you know, the wrath of God off of their sin. But then there was this, and that, that's kind of like, we think of like the lamb of God, Passover lamb, this similar idea. Uh, but then there was this other goat and it was called the scapegoat. We use this term today, right? You commit tax fraud, but then you frame your accountant to take the fall for you. He is your scapegoat. And he goes to jail and takes all the consequences away from you. 
This is what scapegoat means. So what the priest would do is he would lay hands on this goat and symbolically transfer the sin and the consequences and the shame of the sin onto this goat, give it a whack, and it would run off into the wilderness to never be seen again. Both of these goats point uh, to the atoning work of Jesus. One more specifically with the blood part, but then also uh, the second goat, the scapegoat, illustrates how the work of Jesus on the day of atonement, or when he actually died on the cross, removes our sin and our guilt and our shame from us. It removes it from us. It takes it far, far away. You may already know that God offers you forgiveness for your sins, but do you know that he also offers to take away your shame? Many of us are walking with deep shame for the things we've done, for the things that have been done to us. We have shame. We feel guilt. We feel that brokenness. And yet the atonement of Jesus can remove your shame. Uh, a number of times, we'll just rapid fire these verses. As far as from the east, from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In love, you have, been deliv- you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Right? That's where you put a tattoo if you don't want to have to see it. You, you know, it's hard to get back there. That's where God tucks your sin. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. That means to like erase. And I will not remember your sins. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. They did not have those robots that could go down and look at the stuff underwater. If it went into the ocean, they're like, well, that's gone. You know, like it was a different world. Um, so for us, it'd be like, you know, it got, it went out of orbit. We lost it. It's gone. There's no getting it back. Um, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. We spend so much time thinking about what we've done or what has been done to us. And yet, if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, God doesn't think about it anymore. And so we shouldn't either. This is, I think, a little bit of the way that Jesus disarmed the demonic realm. It says it disarmed, it took away their weapons. What is the name of Satan? He is the accuser. So his system, his weapon against us, for the most part, is like I said, they're lawyers, they're whispering to us. If he wants to defeat you, he just needs to whisper in your ear all of the things that you've done, the things that you have have, have done to you, that you are unclean, dirty, unlovable, not valuable, that God has given up on you. He cannot possibly forgive what you have done Now he whispers these things to us. And yet through the work of Jesus, we have had all of those things paid for and then removed from us. So now when he whispers to us, we say, what are you talking about? That's been taken from me. That's not true. And he's like, oh, my whole system is broken, right? This is a good thing. This is what, this is, this is part of that, the beauty, the deeper magic that C.S. Lewis talks about in the atonement. We have been made innocent and we have been set free. So, in conclusion, Jesus' atonement isn't just a good, good example for us. doesn't just inspire us, rescue us, or, or remake us, though it does do all of those things. It also saves us from the just wrath of God, removes our sin, guilt, and shame. 
It allows us to be restored to at-oneness with God in beautiful, fearless, life-giving relationship with him and with other people. It allows us to offer the same forgiveness and love and grace to other people. Uh, Every week we'd like to give you guys a challenge. Uh, This is more like homework, I guess you could say, but it's easy. Uh, It'll be fun. Um, Does everybody know what the Bible Project is? Raise your hand. Wait, wait, let's do this. Raise your hand if you don't know what the Bible Project is. Oh, your lives are about to get amazing. This is, this is a, a small animation house in Portland, Oregon, my hometown. And they make, who's a visual learner? Okay, if nothing I made sense to you, said, anything I said this morning made sense to you because you're more of a visual learner, my slides were not active enough for you, that you will like go into like a YouTube vortex on this. Um, they make beautiful Beautiful, non-embarrassing Christian videos. Usually Christian media is embarrassing. It's getting better. Um, but these guys are like leading, leading animators. Beautiful, beautiful work. It's all for free. They're translating it into French and a bunch of other languages, which is really exciting. Um, your homework for this week is to go onto YouTube or Vimeo, type in The Bible Project Atonement, and you will find this video. What do you see? Goat. There's, both goats are in the video. You'll get to see it. Amazing for kids. Really great to do with your city group. Just don't do it at work. You'll get sucked into vortex, and that's stealing from your employer, and you shouldn't do that. Um, so homework for this week, uh, watch the atonement video, and then join us on Friday night as we celebrate the, the atoning work of Jesus on Good Friday. Have a, a beautiful uh, ceremony with our French congregation and the congregation in Verdun that we're involved in renewing. Very, very exciting to be a part of that. All right, I've reached the end of my notes. I'm going to pray for us. The band can kind of work their way up here into the light. Jesus, uh, it is incomprehensible to us uh, the normity and complexity of what you achieved for us uh, on on Good Friday. I, I think we've just only begun to touch on it. Uh, The Bible gives some indication that we will spend our free time in heaven contemplating what you did, this great mystery. Um, Help us to uh, experience its effects this week as we meditate on it, to enjoy uh, what you have done for us, to experience freedom, renewal, to be inspired by your example, but ultimately to rely uh, on, on... your finished work. Or if there's anybody here has not yet re-entered the embrace of God by trusting in the finished work of Jesus, uh, Lord, I ask that you would just remove them from the hold of the enemy, that you would free them, uh, that you would remove any blocks and hardness of their heart, and that they would see you as beautiful and good, um, that they could be restored this morning. Uh, we ask that you would do this uh, and that you'd be with us as we, as we now worship you as we enjoy this thing. In Jesus' name, amen.